0: Michael, people, greetings. How are you? How's it going? What's the latest and greatest? How's everybody feeling? Hope everyone is fantastic, feeling wonderful as we now approach the week of Halloween. That's right, just a few days away from handing out a lot of tricks and treats, which I'll certainly do throughout the course of this podcast as I navigate the sports landscape here on the latest edition of the J Reels podcast. This is your host, J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me for now, 96 episodes, I welcome you guys back and thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content here on a Monday, October the 28th in the year of our Lord, 2019. Here's what I have on tap for you. There's a new number one in college football. That's right. It's not the Clemson Tigers as Alabama had overtaken them weeks ago. And now it's the LSU Tigers who are now number one in the country as in two weeks, they'll face off against their arch nemesis, the Alabama Crimson Tide, but that's for a later show. We'll recap everything that's going on in college football. We'll also get into the first week of NBA and this replay that I didn't even know about, to be quite honest with you, when we have challenges. And of course, we know about replay in the final two minutes of each quarter, especially in the fourth quarter, which it seems to be in terminal of these games. But with the challenge situation, we had an interesting scenario last night in the Portland Dallas game, which I'll get to later on, as NBA has certainly kicked off. We have the World Series, which now goes to a game six in Houston. And a lot of people were wondering, including myself, after Washington just blitzkrieged them in the first two games, you kind of thought, geez, could this go more than five, considering that the Astros certainly didn't show up in those first two games? Well, talk about a reversal of fortune. I'll get into that. I'll save the World Series and also the latest with the Met manager situation, which I know bores probably a lot of you guys to tears, but I always have to throw in my two cents when it comes to the Mets and how inept that they've been. But thankfully, I'm not a Jet fan. And we'll touch on them just in a little bit, even though we don't want to make this a whole New York-centric program. But we'll start off with the NFL. And I'm going to say this as we head into a Week 9 where we're almost halfway into an NFL season. The reason why I said that because you have some teams who have already played half of their schedule out of the New England Patriots, and they certainly have not lost as of this day, to think their last loss was in Pittsburgh in Week 15 last year. So here they here they are as they go into the month of November – knowing that they haven't lost in almost a whole calendar year. But be that as it may, this NFL season, I'm going to say this right now, has been very underwhelming. And I get that people could say, well, it's all about November and December, September and October, especially with the way the preseasons have gone, where teams do not seem to get their sea legs until maybe week four, or five, etc. But when you look at this on a whole... And I get that you have some interesting storylines when you look at the Niners and what they've done so far, even the Colts, without Andrew Luck. And there are certain teams out there that you certainly would raise an eyebrow to think that here you are halfway through the season and there was no way that you would actually see them perform at a top level. But then again, you got the other side of that where it seems as if if you're not one of the upper echelon teams, if you're not New England, can I throw San Francisco in there? I guess you have to for 2019. If you're not New Orleans... If you're not, I'll say the Chiefs, even with Mahomes out. If you're not any of those teams and you look at the teams that are in the middle, I could throw the Vikings there in the mix, also the Packers, can't forget them. But it seems like you have such a top-heavy league that anybody who's in the middle, you could pretty much scratch off and forget about. Whereas in the past, although you always have the Patriots at the top, they always seem to be there at the end, but you could kind of look at the whole league and the whole landscape and say, "Well, this team could come out, that team. And we all know come January that could change. But this year, it's like the good are so good and the bad are so bad and the teams that are in the middle are just that. I mean, when you look at what happened yesterday in San Francisco, Carolina, I get that the Kyle Allen experiment was certainly going well. He had won four games in a row. People were probably wondering, hey, why bring back Cam Newton? But I'm sure after the performance yesterday, they're like, ah, now we know why Kyle Allen was despite 4-0, that he's a backup quarterback. Especially against a quality team and a quality defense. Or if you look at the Jets and all the promise that they had coming into this season, and a lot of people that I've listened to and certainly know, they want to blow the whole thing up, and they have every right. But until the ownership changes, it seems as if they're just going to continue to be spiraling downward and trending downward in a league where we know from one year to the next you could be bottom feeders and then you could be at the Penthouse before you know it. And when you look at just the league on a whole, now these games the last couple of weeks have been brutal. The schedule certainly has not favored the, of course, for the fantasy guy, as we all know, they're in week in and week out. But when you enjoy the league and love the league, and we get that you're not going to have sexy matchups each week, you do get those crazy upsets that we've seen time and time again. But all in all, when I just look at what I've seen here in the first eight weeks of the season, it has been very underwhelming. And yesterday was certainly indicative of that because although you had a couple of statement games from teams, whether you're the Philadelphia Eagles and what they did in Buffalo yesterday, but as we all know, Buffalo coming into that game at 5-1, and one, they certainly haven't been world beaters. And we get that they've certainly improved, but has Josh Allen taken a step forward as being a guy that you could count on and trust? I don't see it. And I get that after the first two weeks I was singing his praises because, hey, he's actually done a very good job, but he did beat the Jets and Giants in those first two games. If you're looking at the Colts and what they did against the Broncos, I understand, but knowing that Jacoby Brissett made an unbelievable throw from pretty much the back of the end zone to T.Y. Hilton, which set up the game-winning field goal by Adam Vinatieri, who, as we all know, is going to be a Hall of Famer. But he certainly has had his ups and downs this year, and he made another big kick there in a big moment. ...for that franchise as they're now 5-2. and two. I understand the Texans and what they did coming back against the Raiders... ...and Deshaun Watson, who's in the MVP mix. But as we all know, Houston from one week to the next... ...as I've said before, they're Jekyll and Hyde. And you have those teams that certainly have made certain statements... ...or certainly you would think they're going to try to separate themselves from the pack here. But otherwise... You don't really have anything to sink your teeth into when it comes to looking ahead, whether it's in the AFC, and especially in the AFC, because the NFC is a lot more loaded, as we all know. But the AFC, even with the Chiefs yesterday, and we understand that the Packers went in there and beat them, and although they hung tight and they played pretty well, but we all know that the Chiefs are not going to go anywhere with Matt Moore at the quarterback position. And who knows when Patrick Mahomes, with a dislocated kneecap and all, when he's going to be ready to go under center to hopefully get the Chiefs back to where they once were last year, in a sense where they were just one step away, really one play away from going to a Super Bowl. And there are some good teams. I'm not trying to knock the league or say that, ah, you know, the season has gone to crap. It's a little bit too strong, but I'm sure that if I took the pulse from a lot of NFL fans this year, who certainly aren't invested from a fantasy perspective, because as we all know, everybody who is involved in that, and you know I am anti-fantasy player, they're going to look at it and say, yeah, this league, this season has not really stuck out as far as a season where it's, wow, week in and week out, you certainly it's been so topsy-turvy. And we understand that the league is in lulls. It goes up, it goes down, week in, week out. But in the last couple of weeks, it's kind of hit a valley. And you wonder, moving forward, we understand as the season gets deeper, it's going to get better, depending on how the AFC and NFC playoff picture shakes out. But still, halfway in, and I wonder if everybody feels the way I do, that the NFL season so far has been one to forget. And let's not forget, on top of that, the way the officiating has been, the pass interference challenges, which a lot of them have not been overturned. I think they're over the last twenty-two was a stat that I heard yesterday. So, yeah, how has that gone so far? We get that it's reaction from the NFC Championship game last year, and we thought that and it's only an experiment, thank God, for one year. But it certainly has not been a success. And now when you look at the games coming up, oh well, before I even get to the games coming up, the only thing I'm gonna talk about this week's games, which and just this goes to show you how this year so far, to me, has been underwhelming. Your Monday night game tonight is Dolphins and Steelers. And I'm a huge Steeler fan, as everybody knows. But when you have that as your Monday night marquee, and we get that the schedule for Monday night is not what it once was, and it's certainly not going to be comparable to the Sunday night package. But boy, the NFL right now has to be shaking their heads wondering. It's like, geez, uh, can we ever get a good game on the docket here so fans could sink their teeth into and hopefully – be entertained as opposed to having to look up, oh, who do I have in my fantasy draft this week or whatever it may be? I mean, because you go through these games, I'm not going to go through every one of these games as you all well know, people, but the games in London, I have another one upcoming this week. I, can we have enough with the games in London? I know it's not going to stop. I know it's going to continue. It's going to go on for God knows how long. but well, those games are a joke. Yesterday, Bengals 0-8. Their worst start since 2008. Cooper Cup 220 yards. Rams seems like they have have come back now after starting their season 3-0 and and going 0-3 and now winning their next two. Like I said, to me, when you look at yesterday, there are three things. We talked about the Eagles and bouncing back and getting a big win after a no-show in Dallas the week before. The Colts being able to pull that game out at home and Brissett showing you that he is an everyday quarterback. Can't say he's a franchise quarterback just yet, but he's certainly not a backup, and has learned a lot under that system and head coach Frank Reich. And the other thing I'm going to look at yesterday is Drew Brees coming back, the Saints throwing up 373 yards, three touchdowns and a pick, as if he didn't skip a beat. And the Saints right now, if you want to throw the Packers in the mix, and funny enough, you have to throw San Francisco because they have not lost a game. Those are the three teams that are the class of the NFC right now. And that's what you got. And yet people could say, well, J. Reels, look at that. Isn't that enough to... Get your water boiling enough to talk about the NFL. Yeah, well, the Saints, we expect to be there. The Packers were pretty much a wild card considering they have a new head coach And the Niners. Please, I picked them as an under at 8.5, and and boy, do I look stupid. So here we are, and on top of all that, I mentioned about the officiating, and the one storyline that I don't want to say gets swept under the rug, but the one thing that we have to pay attention to is this Patriot defense. Now they're 8-0, they're halfway to 16-0, and that's not going to happen. Because if you looked at their next five games, they have a Sunday night game in Baltimore. They go to Philadelphia. They host Dallas. And after that, I believe they have the Chiefs as the final stretch of that five games in a row. Their last three games are a joke. It's Bengals, Bills, and Dolphins to end the year. But these next five, they're definitely going to lose one, probably two of these games. So the schedule will certainly start to heat up. But as far as the Patriot defense is concerned, right now they're on a pace to give up 122 points this year, which obviously would just shatter the all-time record, which I believe is set by the Browns, excuse me, the Browns, the Baltimore Ravens, the 2000 Ravens, that is, one of the great defenses of all time where they gave up 165 points in a 16-game schedule. But here's the thing, and I understand Pat fans, they're going to say, oh, typical J Reels, or they're going to look at me and say, here he is, ready to throw cold water. But who has this team faced? This team has faced nobody over the first eight weeks of the season. Now, competition is going to stiffen up, and you're going to have teams that are going to have some offenses or NFL offenses that are going to show up here over the next few weeks. So let me see what they do over the course of the next five as opposed to what they've done the first eight. And you can't knock what they've done. They're going to play the teams that are in front of them, and we understand that. And the other team that they're playing in this five-game stretch is at Houston. So let me repeat that. At Baltimore, at Philly, home to Dallas, at Houston, Kansas City. And they finish off the year, like I mentioned, at Cincinnati and home against Buffalo and Miami. But as we all know, the Patriots have not played anything close to an NFL offense here in these first eight weeks. They played the Jets twice, the Giants, the Dolphins once. That, that's four games right there you could put all those players on offense from all f- three of those teams and they still couldn't go out there and probably put up 20 points on the Patriot defense. I mean, that's what we're looking at. And give them credit. They've done a masterful job. They've had TDs from on their defensive side. As a matter of fact, going into the game yesterday, they've given up three offensive TDs and they scored four defensive TDs just to show how dominant they've been. But at the same time, let me see them go up against, I'm not going to say a high-octane offense. I mean, let's not get crazy. But like I said, a competent NFL offense. Can we see that first before we could judge them as the greatest of all time? Or, oh, geez, you got to watch out for this Pat defense. Pretty much that same Pat defense got shredded in the second half against Pat Mahomes last year in the championship game. And people say, oh, look about the Super Bowl. But please, Jared Goff is a quarterback. And Jared Goff had one of the worst games in Super Bowl history as a quarterback. Now, do you want to Attribute that all to the Patriot defense? They'll get credit, of course. But Goff was missing throws left and right. Now, when you look at New England here, it's going to be interesting. This season's not going to be dictated on these five games, of course. And their offense, they were handed three gifts yesterday, which they jumped out to a 17-0 lead. And not to get into that whole game and that whole scenario. But as far as just looking at the league on a whole the Patriots and their dominance and what they've done here so far. It's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds, especially over the next five weeks, because now they're going to go up against an offense where, again, they're not world beaters, they're not record breakers, or maybe in the sense of Lamar Jackson on the ground and what he's done with his legs. But we all know, and this is the crazy thing, Bill Belichick is known for taking the best players on offense out of the game. At the skill position, whether it's a wide receiver, whether it's a running back, etc. Well, here's the thing. He's going to have to take out Lamar Jackson as far as his legs are concerned, which I believe he'll do. And it's going to be an interesting test for this Pat defense to have to go on the road in Baltimore. But the good thing is, is that it starts there, and we're going to get to see for the whole nation to watch how good, or even to a certain extent, how great this Patriot defense is. Now, everybody knows I am not a Raven fan, and I'm not a Lamar Jackson believer as of yet. We know what he does on the ground, and we know he has a good arm, but they certainly do not showcase his arm or his playmaking abilities from the pocket. Everything is safe. And we understand that. He's a young player. He's not going to stretch the field, and they certainly don't have the receivers to go out and just chuck up you know, 70-yard bombs, unless you think Hollywood Brown is that guy. But let's see how the Patriots here over the next five games and pretty much throughout the rest of the season how this defense fares before we even think about putting them in the class of the 85 Bears and the 2,000 Ravens. And then you also have the trade deadline tomorrow, which it's amazing. Go back five years ago. You couldn't sniff a trade in the NFL for the deadline. People wouldn't even know when the trade deadline was. In fact, it was usually the first or second week of October. Now that they've moved it to the end of October, and you've seen more trades here over the last week than you can shake a stick at. And just today, the Dolphins traded Kenyon Drake to the Arizona Cardinals for a conditional 2020 pick as that purge continues for them to tank to get the number one pick. Although they have competition with the Cincinnati Bengals, so we'll see how that uh, fares. And I think they play each other week 15. So talk about the two-a-bowl down in Miami. I believe that game will be in Miami that's one to circle the calendar for if you live in South Florida or in Southeast Ohio. But all these trades, whether it's Emmanuel Sanders going to San Francisco and he scored a touchdown in an opening drive yesterday, whether it's Gary and Conley, who was traded from Oakland to Houston and didn't make much of an impact in the game, only had four tackles, but here he is against his former mates in their comeback win against the Raiders down in Houston. Michael Bennett gets shipped from New England to Dallas. Miguel, uh, Miguel. I'm thinking of the Minnesota Twins baseball player. So no, no. Muhammad Sanu, former Bengal and former Falcon, who is now on the Patriots. And I'm sure you're going to see some more movement between now and tomorrow. I don't know what the deadline is. It's usually around 4 o'clock. You would think, and there's been a ton of rumors, especially here locally with the Jets, maybe Leonard Williams, Robbie Anderson, who knows. And the Jets are a disaster in their own right. I mean, it's amazing to think that they had $100 million under the cap. They had a number three pick overall. They had a quarterback going to his second year. And they're become more dysfunctional than they were eight months ago. But that's the Jets deal. So who knows what's going to happen with these trades over the course of the next 40, uh, 24 hours or so. And now we just got to sit tight and see what's going to transpire here when we look at the rest of the season because now with baseball about to be out and again this baseball season is just about over and of course we'll get to the World Series in a second. But when you get to November, when you get past the World Series, the NFL becomes front and center. Because as hockey and basketball starts getting underway and college football still, again, you got to wait to the bowl season and wait to see who unfolds as far as what team's going to end up in the Final Four Right now, it's going to be football all of November, December, and January before you get to Super Bowl 54 down in Miami that first Sunday in February. Now, as far as next week's games are concerned, your Thursday night game, which I wish they get rid of. It's weird. Every Thursday night, I like from the standpoint that it kicks off the NFL weekend. You have something to watch. I get TNT. The, you can watch the basketball right now. But when you look at these Thursday night games, they are just an absolute bore. All of them. I mean, there's very few and far between that you get a very good competitive Thursday night game. So you have 49ers and Cardinals will start off your weekend. And a lot of people think that it could actually be a hiccup because the week later, uh, go back to the proverbial trap game, the 49ers and Seahawks will score off against each other for the first time. So who knows if... The Niners, after a short week traveling to the desert to play Arizona, who lost yesterday, will it be a situation where they'll get overlooked in lieu of the matchup with the once-rival Seahawks ten days from now, or ten days from then, I should say? But your schedule this week, and then you have the, of course, the London game, like I mentioned, with Houston and Jacksonville. Uh, the games this week, although you have the good Sunday night, a real good Sunday night with New England and Baltimore. You have your Monday night game as Cowboys and Giants. If anybody wants to get up for Packers and Chargers, please be my guest. I won't. But the other when you look at all the one o'clock games, Vikings and Chiefs has some appeal, but we all know with Mahomes out it's not going to have the marquee one o'clock matchup that everybody will wanna rally around and take a good look at. Colts and Steelers, see what the Steelers do tonight. Hopefully they beat the Dolphins. If they don't, then they might as well just (laughs) pack it up for the rest of this year. Redskins, Bills, Jets, Dolphins, Bears, and Eagles. Boy, the Bears, they've certainly, you talk about falling off a cliff. Lions and Raiders, Bucks and Seahawks, Browns and Broncos. It just attests to everything that I said at the outset of this podcast this first half of the NFL season, if you had to put a rating on it, it's a C-. Maybe it's a little bit generous. It should be like a, maybe a hard D+, but you want to give it that? Fine. The year, it certainly has not been sexy. It certainly has not been as riveting. Yeah, you've had riveting games. And you've had riveting weeks. But the last two have been ho-hum, and it looks like it's going to be another ho-hummer this coming Sunday. So that's what I got with the NFL. I figured I'd get that out of the way. Get all the, I don't want to say the negativity. I don't want to get as strong as that. But as we've talked about New England and San Francisco being the undefeated teams and the winless teams with Miami playing tonight and the Bengals 0-8, you certainly have a race, like I said, a race to see who's going to lose their first game and the race to see who's going to win their first game. And wouldn't that be something? We know New England and San Francisco aren't going to play this year, but could you imagine if both Miami and Cincinnati prior to their week fifteen matchup are both winless up until that game. Now that would be something. Now that's obviously a bad thing for the league because they certainly don't want to promote two teams that haven't won a game. And I'm sure both teams will win between now and then. Who knows? Miami can actually win this week at home against the Jets, which doesn't say a lot for their organization and the Jet and the fans as we've talked about a few minutes ago. But that's certainly something to look at, but it's certainly when you underline everything that I've said from the start, just goes to show you how bad this NFL year has been. All right, now we get to the World Series and who would have thought that after those first two games with a little bit of a role reversal, I thought going in that the Nationals would be flat, especially offensively. We know about Scherzer and Strasburg who pitched both fine in their games. Scherzer had to gut out game one. He went five innings. He threw, I believe, 112 pitches, but he gutted that out in the bullpen, did a superb job. And then Strasburg came in there other than the home run that he gave up to Alex Bregman was masterful in six innings. And as I predicted last week, I thought that the national bats would be cold considering that they had a week off. They certainly weren't going to do anything. That wasn't the case. They had that crazy seventh inning which it got away from Verlander and they put a 12 spot up and won 12 to three as the scene shifted to the nation's capital over the weekend. I'm thinking to myself, Man, if they could somehow, someway take a game three and they could set themselves up for a sweep. I would have never thought in a million years that would have been the case, but I thought to myself that if they somehow, someway could get one of those next two, meaning if, they, if the Nats were to win either game three or game four, it would have been a five-game series. But what happened along the way, the Nationals couldn't get a big hit, and the Nationals actually reverted to the form that I thought would happen in games one and two, where to think. I thought that even after that outburst that they had the six-run seventh and they ended up with 12 runs, I thought to myself Thursday morning, I said, I hope they save some of those runs because they're going to need them in Washington. And we understand that they weren't going up against a Garrett Cole in a game three or Verland in a game four. They actually went up against Zach Granke, who fought out a lot of tough situations and battled and... Despite the fact that he's not the pitcher that he once was, but he does does show you some gumption. Now, what did that mean for four and two-thirds? Didn't mean a lot, but certainly the game didn't get out of hand where Washington could not get a big hit to save their lives. Now, when after that game, game four, from then on out, they barely hit, let alone scored any runs. The Nationals, that is. So after that 12 spot they got, they proceeded to score one run in each of the next three games at home. And now they have to go back to Houston to face Justin Verland in a game six to kind of redeem himself. And here's a guy who is a Hall of Famer we all know. Has had has been a very good postseason pitcher. Has not been a – I can't even say he's been not been a good World Series pitcher. He's been an awful World Series pitcher. Six starts, he's 0-5 with an ERA, I believe, over six. Well, he can erase all that tomorrow night with a win at home against the Nationals team where when you go up and down the lineup, other than Soto, nobody's hit. Trey Turner, who is the catalyst of that offense, what is he batting, 176? Rendon has cooled off big time. Zimmerman, even after the home run against the uh, Cole in game one, has done nothing. I mean, the whole offense have gone to sleep, which is what I would have thought, as I said before, would have happened with the Nats, and I thought it would be a five-game series for the Astros. Well, they proved me wrong from the outset, and I thought that they would continue to rake going back into the confines of their own ballpark. But when you look at Even what Jose Urquidy did in Game 4, which certainly would have been beneficial for the Nats to get themselves a 3-1 series lead. Patrick Corbin, who, let's face it, maybe the Yankees knew something about Patrick Corbin not signing him. To me, he's James Paxton. But without a $140 million contract that's attached to them, where the Nationals have to worry about that for the next five years. Because those two guys are similar in regards that Paxton and Corbin, they could pitch a lights-out game they could go six, seven innings, strikeout 12, give up a run and four hits. And then they could give you a performance where it's five, four or five innings, six runs, six hits, three walks, two strikeouts. And Corbin in their biggest game of the year, which to me, I thought it was a must for them to get that win because just of the, because of the pitching matchup. And who would have thought that Max Scherzer would have been out of yesterday's game, had to be scratched because of a neck spasm. But to me, that was the game. If they would have won that game, they could have gone back to Houston with a lead. And then last night, what could you say? Joe Ross comes in. Jordan Alvarez, where you couldn't find him on anywhere. There was an APP out for all the productivity that he put forth in the regular season. was none to be found, but last night he woke up and he had a big two-run homer to start, followed by another two-run homer by Carlos Correa and then give it up George Springer again I understand it was another late home run he tacked it on but 7 World Series home runs from a guy who's played 11 World Series games that's impressive and with Scherzer that, when I saw that I said to myself oh geez there's no way that the Astros do not come out of this World Series without winning a championship because that was their only hope to get themselves to Houston up a game and not that it guaranteed anything I would think Strasburg is going to go on regular rest tomorrow. Who knows? If I'm sure if Scherzer wakes up tomorrow and he's feeling 100%, you could push Strasburg to a game seven if it gets that far. But right now, it's looking like Strasburg is going to pitch a game six, and maybe you set up Scherzer for game seven. Corbin you can't trust. So even if you were looking at him to pitch on three days rest, <laughs> I wouldn't do it. He's going to have to come out of the bullpen. And... The Astros, what could you say? The Astros seem to do the right things to get the big hits in the big spots. Give it up to Robinson Chirinos, the, uh, the catcher. He's also chipped in with a couple home runs in the series, both in games three and four. And that's been the case of the Astros all year long. The team that won 107 games, Got off to a very slow start in this World Series, and I thought to myself, geez, they may not make it out of D.C., let alone get back to Houston. Well, guess what? Here they are right now, just one nine innings away, and I'm sure Justin Verlander is salivating at the thought of just clinching this at home and kind of erasing the back of his World Series baseball card when it comes to his record. And let's see what the Nats have. Maybe the Nats in that ballpark, their bats get going, who knows? Maybe it's the sight lines, it's the backdrop? Whatever it was, but they're certainly going to need to get themselves off on the right foot tomorrow. And I would say this: if you're in the Nats lineup, if you don't put up a two or three spot, or even if maybe just get one run, we'll start there. But if you don't get to Verlander in that first inning, especially in the first couple innings, you might as well just pack your bags and go home. Because once Verlander has some gas in that tank, and he's and you know he's going seven innings, he's going to throw 120 pitches, his last start of the year, so. Nat fans, you better hope that the Nats get to them early and put up a crooked number because if by any stretch they got to play uphill, you might as well just hand the trophy over to the Astros for the second time in three years. And should I already get to this Met deal? Oh, geez. I know people are probably sick of me talking about the Mets, and the only reason why I'm going to do so is because of Joe Girardi going to Philadelphia, where Philly did the right thing. They targeted three guys, and they got the one that they wanted in Joe Girardi. Dusty Baker and Buck Walter were the other two. And in my heart of hearts, did I feel as if Joe Girardi was going to go to the Mets? No, I didn't. As a fan, I hold hope. And part of the reason why I didn't think he was going to go to the Mets is everything I've said going back to the summer of not trusting this organization. And we all know that the reason why they didn't go after a guy or even – a manager in the ilk of a Joe Girardi, Dusty Baker, Buck Showalter, is we know that Brody Van Wagenen holds the puppet strings. He is the guy that no way is going to have a baseball mind to come in there and dictate what it is that he wants to the general manager. Mind you that the Joe Girardi, who not only was 10 years here in New York, knows the media, obviously played here, won a world championship, was 200 games over 500, no, we can't have a guy like that in there because he's going to be too smart or he's going to be upstage the general manager where, let's face it, the guy who's been a general manager for a year and a year longer than I have because obviously I'm never going to be a GM, but knowing that he was an agent prior to that, no, we can't have a guy that's certainly going to manage a game the right way or manage a bullpen, a pitching staff, whatever it is. No, we have to have our analytics department. We have to have certain guys on our team who are going to make sure that they're going to set everything out for the manager, that they're going to have everything on a silver platter, but it's going to be on my terms, my rules, or it's going to be the highway. Which, as we all know, is an absolute joke. But we understand. This is baseball in 2019. We get it. And here's the crazy thing. You're hearing all these names resurface. The bench coach for the Milwaukee Brewers now could be the, quote-unquote, mystery candidate the bombshell decision or the bombshell, whatever they want to call it, which to me is just blowing smoke up the fans' rear ends. But Pat Murphy, I believe is his name, and no offense to the guy, I'm sure he's a nice guy, whatever, but why should he be of any consideration for this Met job? And you know what? I understand a young manager, they want to try to, I hate to say it this way, but learn on the fly when it comes to managing. And when you talk about learn on the fly, you're in the biggest market of the country, obviously in the world, and a fan base that's been starting for a championship for now 33 years, and why should we entrust? We've already been down the road with Mickey Calloway. Why should the organization entrust in a Luis Rojas, even in a Carlos Beltran, any of these names that have surfaced that are going to be first-time managers? Why? It's almost as if the organization, in particular, I'm going to say Brody, but of course Jeff Wilpon, they're not looking at it from the big picture. They're not looking at it from a standpoint of, you know what, we've been down this road with the first-year manager, let's bring in the seasoned, grizzled vet. No. Let's stick with a first-time manager. Might as well just hire me to be the manager. Why not? Even though I'll be fired after probably 10 games, I get that, but let's be real here. When you have an opportunity to pounce on a guy like Joe Girardi, and then you're like, nah, And he goes not only that, but down the turnpike to your biggest rival? That's all you need to know about where this organization is headed. Despite the fact that it has a core and it has a good pitching staff. But with the general manager who plays and has his fingerprints on everything. We all know that he needs to have a guy that he could call or text or whatever it is that he needs to communicate to without having to get any pushback. Without having to have any interference. It's almost as if, like I said, he's the one pulling the strings. And of course, if you're going to have a young manager, which I get. A young manager wants to get one of these 30 positions and there's only 30 in Major League Baseball. Of course, anybody would want to sign up to take the task of trying to take the Mets to the promised land for the first time in almost three and a half decades. But at the same time, with that being said, what young manager would want to come here knowing... And we get it, this is the climate of baseball throughout all 30 teams. But why would they want to come here knowing that the pressure, the aura, the everything that goes around this particular job, I'm not going to say it's a no-win job, but let's face it. When you look at what happened with Mickey Calloway, anybody who comes in here with less experience than he did, it's just going to be an uphill battle. And... I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't know who they're going to bring in here. But whoever it brings, it just doesn't make a difference. Whether it's Carlos Beltran, they could bring a Wally Backman, which we know who's not going to come anywhere near City Field. I think he'd do a better job than those guys. But again, another first-year manager, but there's no way because we know Wally Backman's old school. So uh, I'm just going to not even speak anymore on that. Let's see who they bring in. I'm sure there's going to be an announcement after the World Series at some point. I mean, the more they delay this with the second round of interviews, if they don't have a – I'm going to say this, and then I'll move on. If they do not have a hire by a week from today, so by the time I get this podcast up and running next Monday, if they don't have a candidate, if they don't have somebody that's already ready at the podium with the jersey and the baseball cap and go ahead and let's start asking questions, if they don't have somebody by then, then we all know that this is just an absolute joke of an organization. It already is, but it just cements it. Because everybody else is getting their managerial positions secure. And let it be the Mets, of course, to be the last ones standing. But at the same time, they'll be the first ones laughed at. Not only throughout baseball, but throughout their fan base, sports, etc. All right, now for my college football heads out there, which I'm sure that they're chomping at the bit. Looking forward to a matchup in two weeks or roughly 12 days between LSU and Alabama, who have now become the number one team in the country. That's right, the LSU Tigers have overtaken the Alabama Crimson Tide here in the top 25, the coaches' poll, whatever it may be. And that matchup is going to be one where, if you listened to me last week, we know Alabama is owned over the years. Maybe this year will be a little bit different. Remains to be seen. We'll certainly look forward to that and talk about that the Monday after that game. But when you take a look at the landscape here in college football, LSU with their win over Auburn the other day, catapulted them to the top spot in the country. Now, it's interesting because when you look at this week, LSU, Alabama, even Ohio State and Penn State all have buys. So a lot of the top teams here in the throughout the country will not be performing. But, of course, it sets you up for the game in Tuscaloosa with the Tigers and Crimson Tide. So I'm sure that's going to be the battle of the century or maybe the battle of the year at least. But we all know those are uh, SEC rivals going way back. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what that game will be like. A lot of those games have been defensive struggles. Uh, I can't see why that wouldn't be any different, but we'll talk about that as we get closer. The only game of note this week is Georgia and Florida. And the big upset of the weekend was the game in Kansas State where Oklahoma was outlasted by K-State, 48-41. And those games happen, unfortunately. Time and time again, you'll see that upset, although... The game is in the other team's building. It'd be more of an upset if that game was in Oklahoma. But they certainly took a hit as far as their chances to get into the college football playoff. Obviously, a lot of time remains to see how this all shakes down. But uh, K-State pulls off the upset, which to me was the storyline of the weekend. Other than that, I understand Notre Dame gets blasted by Michigan. And Michigan, as we all know, as we've said time and time again, they've certainly had another year where It looks like Jim Harbaugh is not going to be able to do the job. We all know it's all going to be up against Ohio State. That's where he's going to be graded. And certainly for him, you wonder if that game is going to be an indication of him not being the Wolverine coach moving forward after this year. So who knows? But college football will start to pick up despite the fact that this weekend you don't have much, only the Florida-Georgia game. And then the week after that, we'll certainly preview that and talk about what the, the impact of the number one versus number two will be for the rest of this college football season moving forward. So that's all we have there, people. And the top 25, let's see, is right now, going well, to go as far as 25, but uh, here's what you have, the up to the second posting here. You have LSU, follow Alabama, Ohio State, and Clemson, followed by Penn State, Florida, Oregon, Georgia, Utah, and Oklahoma. So there was your top 10. So Oklahoma went from 5 to 10 with their loss to K-State. Now as we get into November, again this week is going to be a bit of a lull, but between the LSU-Alabama game and as you get toward the end of the year, the college football year, obviously with all the rival games, uh, certainly we'll see how this all plays out for the college football playoff. All right, a couple of cookies before I say goodbye. The NHL... The Islanders have on a run here. They've won seven in a row, certainly performed very well here. I know the Capitals have also done well to get their season off to a phenomenal start. Islanders right now just uh, three games behind them, or three points, I should say, in the division. The Sabres certainly have come out of the gate real fast at 9-2-1. They've certainly been a very intriguing story to start off the year, as well as Edmonton, as I said last week. Edmonton certainly got off to a uh, hot start as well. They were 7-1-1. and They cooled off a little bit, but certainly playing well at the start of the season. And sadly, the both Rangers and Devils are at the bottom of the NHL barrel, both with six and seven points respectively. Other teams, we talk about L.A. and San Jose, especially getting off to a slow start. And you also have, what else here, the NHL. And of course, I'll get into it more as time goes on. You know, once we get uh, a little bit more deeper into this NFL season and once the playoffs start to kick in, we'll certainly turn our attention to more of the winter sports. Same with the NBA. The only thing I have from the NBA to discuss, and it's only two or three games. I mean, I'm not going to get crazy. I know the Warriors are off to a 0-2 start. People want to look at that. They got blasted by the Clippers at home in the opening of the Chase Center there in San Francisco. How about the Hawks 2-0? But, right, it's not more or less the records and... Knicks are 0-3, no surprise. Brooklyn lost two games, including a game against Memphis in overtime despite the heroics from Kyrie Irving, especially in the opener against the Minnesota Timberwolves. But the story to me, and I didn't know about this up until the, what was it? Season started last Tuesday. I didn't realize that the NBA is experimenting with a challenge just for this year to institute challenges when it comes to fouls or certain plays throughout the course of a game and when I saw that a couple of coaches challenged some questionable plays in the first half of games I'm thinking to myself why would you want to waste and you only get one I don't think it's one per half I believe it's just one for the entire game I was just stunned by that I said why would anybody want to challenge I mean unless it's blatant or something that where hey it could be momentum changing let's say if it was a uh they are not going to talk about a buzzer beater because they're going to review those regardless. But those would be something that you save for the end of the game. And in this case, last night in the Portland-Dallas game, I found it very fascinating that there was a play involving Damian Lillard where he stripped the ball out of, I believe, it wasn't Luka Doncic, but they actually called a foul on the play. But Lillard went to his coach, Terry Stotts to say, no, challenge it. They challenged it, and what happened was the ball ended up being, uh, it was a loose ball. So they looked at it as the play was dead. So after the play was overturned, it was a jump ball. Portland was able to secure the ball. They were down by one point at the time. They tacked on a free throw. They ended up winning 121 to 119. This is a case where the challenge did work out in their favor. But again, it's when you're going to use these. We get that it's experimental. Maybe these coaches are saying, ah, it's not going to matter here or there. Let me just see what they say as far as overturning a call whether it's in the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter of the game. Maybe the coaches aren't going to look at it and say, well, I may not even be in the game in the fourth quarter. Let me just take a chance now. Well, it certainly worked for Stotts and company, and you wonder throughout the course of the year how much that's going to factor in. There was a foul situation in that game. It wasn't an out-of-bounds play where the officiating, they'll look at the review under two minutes to go in the fourth quarter. This was a foul. So obviously they don't look at fouls. So that's where Stotts used his challenge thanks to an assist from Damian Lillard. And the Trailblazers ended up with a win on the road against the Mavericks. And Porzingis has gone off to a good start. I know he had 32 points in the game for the Knicks fans. Just kind of throw it in their faces. But but that was a good move for the Knicks. They need to get rid of him and we'll see what Porzingis does here uh, in Dallas for this upcoming season. But uh, as far as the NBA, yeah, that's pretty much it. Nothing else really to report here in this first week. The, like I talked about some of these games, these teams that are 2-0, and even the Timberwolves are 3-0, and but the Timberwolves, who do they play? They played the Nets, they played the Hornets, and did the, uh, they played the Suns, I want to say, last night. I get that you play who you play, and that's what it is, but the T-Wolves, they're off to a flying start for what it's worth here in this first week of the season. Come back in a month, and we'll see where they're at, but to me, that was like the biggest news of the week with the challenges. I didn't know that even existed, so... Bad job on my part, but as we all know, in all these leagues, they're instituting all these different rules, replays, challenges, reviews, etc. So, good for the NBA. Let's see if that works for this upcoming year. All right, now to close out the podcast, of course, we cannot forget my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week? Maybe a little bit of a surprise to some people, but nevertheless, you got to give him props for what he's done here, and that is none other than a one Eldrick Tiger Woods. That's right. If people are wondering, wait a minute, how does he become a hero this week? Well, he had won his 82nd overall tournament as far as the golf tour is concerned. It's not a major. We all know that. But he was performing in Japan at the Zozo Championship as he tied Sam Sneed for all-time record win number 82 on the tour. He's just one win away from owning the record all to himself. Great job by Tiger being able to go ahead. And I, I know it meant a lot to him. That was a record that he's targeted for many years and never thought that he'd even get to that point. And we all know everything that had happened between his health and everything that happened off the course. So kudos to him. 82nd. We'll see if he could get an 83rd at some point here over the course of, uh, I don't know if there's how many more tournaments are going to be throughout the remainder of this year, but as you go into next year and obviously with all the majors and we know he came off of that masters win back in April. So kudos to him uh, as he's the hero of the week. And my zero of the week is the former Astros GM Brandon Tobman for his comments that were made in the locker room, this SI interview came out, or article I should say, where after the championship series, the former GM was yelling in the direction of a reporter who was wearing a domestic violence awareness bracelet, it was purple, for the comments that were made toward Robert Osuna, Roberto Osuna, excuse me, the closer of the Astros where he said, and I won't, get into specific details of what he said, but pretty much he was happy that he got him. Thank God for Roberto Osuna, and he threw in an expletive there at the direction of this reporter. So once that came to the surface, and a good job by the Astros, they had to do that. Uh, Taubman was uh, shown the door. Bad job by him. So he is my zero of the week. And what could you say? Even though the Astros are on the cusp of winning a World Series in the process, uh, they took a big loss there. I don't know how big, but at the same time, It certainly dampers a little bit of the championship spirit when you had something like that, but they acted swiftly. They took care of it, and uh, good for them in doing so. So that will do it here for this week. As always, thank you very much for taking the time out to listen to what it is I have to say about the world of sports. If you also want to contribute on the back end, on your end, I would greatly appreciate it by doing so, where you hit subscribe on wherever you listen to your podcasts, obviously Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, iHeartRadio, et cetera. By doing so and also leaving a rating, posting a review, all that's going to do is just increase the visibility of this podcast with the many others that are out there and at the same time generate more interest among the likes of people that I'm trying to get on this podcast. That's right. So whether that's for the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, the writer, blogger, you name it, uh, all that's going to do with your participation is just uh, show that the J Reels podcast not only exists, but it's actually moving up the ranks. So if you could do that, I'd be forever indebted to you guys. You could also reach me, if need be, any questions, comments, criticism, praise on any of my social media accounts. Whether it's JReels on Instagram, JReels One, just a number on Twitter, the JReels podcast on my Facebook fan page, and an email address, the JReel Podcast at gmail.com, So feel free to reach out to me if need be. You could also contribute in another way. That's right for the production of this podcast. So whether that means some advertising, a little marketing. Uh, just some upkeep of the website Things of that nature You could do so on my Patreon page That's uh, P-A-T P is in Paul A-T is in Tom R-E-O-N dot Slash the J Reels Podcast Again, that 100% of whatever it is That you want to contribute Goes directly to the production of this podcast Don't worry I'm not trying to finagle you guys I'm certainly not trying to Buy a G5 Gulfstream five uh, jet Or a Rolls Royce By any stretch of the imagination It all goes to this podcast because all I want to do week in, week out is to deliver nothing but informative, credible, but certainly entertaining sports chatter for you guys, for the masses, for anybody who's interested in listening because that's what I love to do and that's what I'm here for. So wherever these games are played, whether it's on the diamond, on the ice, on the gridiron, the hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it, from my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the j Rose podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to South Beach to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.